Our scripture reading this morning is Revelation 7, verses 9 through 14. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, singing, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is the word of the Lord. So each week when we come here, we gather, and at our very center, there is this table. In this house of God, there is a table in our midst. And we believe this table is a mysterious place where God comes to meet us and draw us close. Yet it's also the place where we remember the different ways Jesus gathered people around the table in his life to show some extravagant love and care and mercy. And at those tables, he showed these strange social etiquette, rule-breaking manners, so to speak, that comforted some and challenged the status quo and was meant to lead to inward heart change as well as communal change. And over the past couple weeks, we've been reflecting on Jesus' table manners in our own as well, and how they line up with Jesus. And in doing so, we've been considering our, our new welcome statement, which print, is printed in the bulletin at the very end. And this week, what I want to do is I want to focus on how we affirm and, and celebrate the wonderful ethnic and cultural diversity in God's good creation. A few moments ago, Naomi read the scripture passage from Revelation, which dis- Revelation describes, um, that passage at least, describes a vision from, from the Holy Spirit that was given to a guy named John about what it would look like when God renews the world. It begins, after this I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white and waving palm branches. And they cried out, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. 
In the vision of the end here in Revelation, there is a wonderfully diverse group from all across the world gathering to worship God who is at the very center. And this vision of the end is the grand resolve to Scripture's tension and longing for what was at the beginning. A scene of serenity. Recall this with me. God crafted each mountain, set each star in place, and breathed breath into the lungs of all, giving life. And humans awoke to this wonderful life with God. And yet they awoke not just with God, but in the presence of each other, male and female. And there was similarity and there was difference in the other whom they met. And they were created for this mutual, self-giving, self-offering love for God and each other. Whether we consider Genesis at the very beginning of the scripture story or Revelation at the very end, these are two wonderful images for human life. But we live in a time in between We live in a world that is quite different than these two pictures of one humanity with God at the center, do we not? Perhaps we notice it when we turn on the news or read the paper or scroll across our timelines on social media and see a variety of ways in which people of all nations and colors wage war upon each other. But to be honest, we're not so far removed from it from these divisions and conflicts. Because each one of us has a body and a story that participates in the grander story and the grander body of humanity and all its complexities and troubles. Let me explain for, for myself. For me, in my story, I grew up in Rochester Hills, Michigan an upper-class suburb where I saw in most people my own white European body reflected back to me. And I had this wonderful education and experience growing up, and I learned about how good my educational experience was and school system's richness because um, I didn't really try very hard in high school, uh, which don't do that, high schoolers and middle schoolers. <laughs> do good. Uh, I, I, uh, and I, when I went to college, I was like far better grammatically and in a bunch of ways than a lot of my classmates. And I, I, I think that just being in this wonderful school system, that somehow by osmosis, I was able to get a lot more than I could have. I had this wonderful growing up experience in which I was surrounded by a good family. And the most trying experiences came when I was playing cards with my grandma, who I kid you not, always cheated. <laughs> And who I gained a knowledge that sometimes life just isn't fair. (laughs) I was able to to, um, go to college and get this great degree and continue to pursue degrees and not really have to hold down much of a job while doing that. My education and support uh, was, was really felt and I had this wonderful network of family and opportunities down the road. And all throughout this time, most of the conversations about racial conflict were in class discussions about the Holocaust, about horrible, horrible naturalization processes and experiences from Irish, Italian, Armenian immigrants, 
and also the horror stories from the civil rights movement. But they were removed and theoretical. My firsthand experiences that I can really say challenged me came when I was in Holland, Michigan for seven years. I was fortunate enough during my, my junior and senior year to be befriended by a guy named Robert, uh, whose family was originally from Liberia, but who grew up in Trenton, New Jersey, and found his way to Hope College. And it was one of the most deepest spiritually enriching friendships that I've ever experienced. However, I glimpsed the fears and the threats that he suffered that I had never witnessed or experienced. Like the time he was called the N-word by some kid yelling it across campus. Or the worry that came to him when someone posted the Ku Klux Klan poster on the walls of our dorm. I was also fortunate enough to walk closely with a professor named Chris Dorsey, another African-American man whose wisdom and love for Jesus and the church shaped my own. But I was startled one night when, over fish tacos, he so cavalierly mentioned the fact that in the three years he had been living in, in Holland, Michigan, he had been pulled over seven times, seven more times than I had in the seven years I lived in Holland. Perhaps a couple of the most stark experience came, experiences came in my time at seminary between my, my second and my third year. It was when I lived in, in Detroit, and I worked in a community center where most kids were raised by grandparents, and the most startling thing about their school is, was not the graduation rate, but the fact that the teachers were the ones that had to bring in the toilet paper for their students to use during the day this unthinkable reality to me in my town of Rochester Hills. And it was also the, the summer of the Trayvon Martin case. You might remember it. Where a hooded black teenager was shot by a community watch person. And the community watch person was later exonerated. And what's, what sticks out to me in my mind was the experience of sitting at the table the night that verdict came down with five roommates, all who were persons of color, and the emotion was hanging palpable in the air. Frustration and anger and sadness. But perhaps worst of all, there was a loss of hope. And I can remember one of my friends saying, I'm not even surprised by this because it just keeps happening over and over and over and it won't ever end. It won't ever be different. And these experiences broke through and poked holes in the rosy, perfect, harmonious world in which I grew up. And these stories for me were encounters of this world's brokenness and sin and evil that I couldn't really understand at the moment, and I'm still trying to understand their effects. And maybe you are as well. As I reflect on my story, I, I often don't feel quite qualified to talk about these racial issues. 
But there comes time when the church and we as followers of Jesus have to be uncomfortable, just as I imagine some of you are very uncomfortable right now, and wrestle with these really important things that are contrary to God's design for us and for this world. Over the past week, I had the opportunity to sit at the feet of a wonderful follower of Jesus who's named Brian Bantam. Brian is a professor in uh, Seattle Pacific University. He's the son of a a black man and a white woman, and he's married to a Korean-American who grew up in the, uh, the black neighborhoods of Chicago. And his experience is continually processing and coming to understand his identity as a racially complex person in a racially complex world that isn't just black and white. And Brian wrote this book that I read this week, which is called The Death of Race, in which he asks, how, we, how did we get here? And he begins to answer it by, by saying that each of us has a body and a story. Like I shared my story earlier and how I come here as a particular person with a particular life story and how each of you come here with a particular body, beautifully and wonderfully made by God, with a particular story of joys and hurts and successes and failures, love, loss, and gained, and all tied up in this knot of things you bring with you today. And each of us is is connected to this interconnected web that is the one body of humanity. But the problem of race and the way we conceive race, Bantam says, is that we haven't lived up to that beginning vision that we talked about earlier. The one where we were made to live with God at our center and to celebrate both the similarities and the differences of each other and to move toward one another in love. And that the first sin was not just turning away from a loving and trusting God who's at the center, but it's always also turning away and moving toward moving away from each other in mutual love. It is, it is moving away from one another out of fear of difference. And this is transcribed in the words of Scripture from the very beginning. When right after this, this moment of the fall, man subjected woman to be his subject and rule over her. And, and Cain killed his brother Abel because God liked Abel's offering better. And there was division and enslavement and violence between families and tribes and nations that spread across the world just because of differences we saw in one another. And the power of sin grew greater and greater like a cancer that metastasized through the human race. And one difference was race. Bantam writes, race is a form of death because it renders certain bodies to be nothing but bone. It eats away at the uniqueness and beauty of every individual and incorporates them into an ecosystem where such uniqueness is only possible for white bodies. Race is a system that classifies bodies in order to justify their economic and sexual exploitation and that renders dark bodies criminal, hypersexual, utterly invisible, and yet fearfully present. 
I was wrestling with this book. And in my wrestling, it, was, it became clear to me that, that this issue of race is not just the one-off individual acts that every person, regardless of color, can commit. But rather, it's a deeper and wider imbalance of injustice in a web and ecosystem of the human race that benefits some and dehumanizes others. And as I wrestled with this, I had to confront the fact that within my own story and my own life as a white male, these opportunities and these experiences and the securities that I felt growing up are largely a result of a racial society that is slanted toward me. I have never felt like life is just one big card game against my grandma, so to speak. One in which I can never win. But my friend Robert and my professor Chris and my friends in Detroit and I perhaps people that you know do know that and live with that daily. And we are all caught up in this effect of sin. And perhaps it gives each of us, like the people at that table in Detroit, very little hope. But each week we come here and we proclaim and remember and celebrate an important truth that God isn't just active and present in the beginning or the end, but the middle. That God has come powerfully present to be with us in our broken world, in our messiness, in our bodies, in our stories, to invite us to be at a table with him. And the beauty of the gospel is that in Jesus, God takes up a body and lives a story within the grand story and body of humanity that is carving itself up and decaying from the insides, and God chooses to bring healing from within. Bantam writes this. As Jesus walks in the world, he lives into our human condition, into a culture, into an empire, into expectations of what it means to be a man and a Jew. And so his personhood transforms the pattern of relationship among us and within the institutions, like family or nation or economy, that shape our lives. He journeys into the ways society refuses what God intends for us to be. And as he walks, he presses his perfection into our imperfections. Time and time again, Jesus refuses the status quo, refuses to be comfortable, refuses to be put into a box, and moves toward those whose society does not see, who are enchained, who are, have illnesses, who are lonely, who are inflicted by the pain of religion or government that is trying to quarantine people because of fear and difference. And instead, Jesus moves toward people on the margins and those who are hurting and who are broken to encourage and heal and comfort and show love and build them up. All to bring inward change and outward change. And we too are called to live in the same pattern as Jesus, invited to sit at the same table and learn the same table manners and social etiquette. 
so that some and all might be comforted, that we all might be challenged, and so that there might be change both inwardly and outwardly among us. And so if we're to, we're to follow Jesus, it means something for how we're to be engaging this conversation about race. Because Jesus invites everybody to the table, a great diversity of people. And so I believe it means showing up with your whole body and your whole story and all that you are and the joys and brokenness and messiness of the complexity of who you are. And it invites you to understand the body and the story and the complexity of the person who sits next to you of the table in all of their difference. It invites us to see that the one who is sitting next to us has to be there and that we cannot truly sit there without them. Leaning into this conversation of race means leaning into a courageous action of learning in conversations where we might learn tough truths about ourselves and continue to press on through that to remain curious as we move toward understanding the person next to us and what has shaped their life. Jesus invites us to an open heart and an open mind, willing to learn something about ourselves and others we might not know yet. It invites us to the knowledge that maybe we don't have it all right, and maybe we have a lot of things to learn, and maybe we have to engage some really difficult conversations to get there. But getting there will be wonderful and worth it, and the joy that will be experienced when coming around the table will be far greater than we could ever hope or imagine. I want to leave you with this quote by, by uh, Brian Bantam. We are a body committed to confessing when we have failed to see either the beauty of another or our transgressions. And the tragic truth is that we need both in order to flourish. And in the face of what feels like the constant dehumanization of this world, we speak words that create, that build spaces where people and their whole selves can be known. And so we stand, perhaps, at the vestibules of power and declare, if it does not make us all more human, more free, more loving, it is not worth doing. Let's pray. God, you invite us to a table where we sit with so many, and we pray that we see each other for who they are and offer ourselves as well. We pray your Holy Spirit will be working internally in us to show us how we are to live as a reflection of your Son, Jesus, in this world. We pray this in your name. Amen.